we're going to be starting a new sermon series in a couple of weeks. Um, But this morning, I want us to look together at this parable that we'll find in Luke chapter 16. Um, So if you want to turn in your bulletin, it's on page 12. Or if you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 875 and 76 of the Pew Bibles. Um, But let me tell you up front why I want us to talk about this parable on this Sunday. Um, Because it's because among other things in this parable, Jesus tells us here of the sufficiency and the necessity of Scripture, uh, God's Word, the Bible. Um, I know, if you're like me, um, the new year is a chance for new beginnings and New Year's resolutions. And so, one of mine is to eat better. It's always, you know, it's always a new, it's a recurring New Year's resolution for me. And to exercise uh, and things like that. Um, We'll see how long that lasts this year. But this morning, as you're thinking about fresh starts for the new year, I want to encourage you as your pastor um, that you need to renew your commitment this coming year to the reading, the studying, and listening to God's Word, that you need to make a regular commitment um, to get your family and to get yourself under the regular weekly preaching of God's Word. Um, Because in the parable that Jesus told and that we're about to read, He's making the case that your life now and forever depends upon just that, um, upon listening to God's Word. So let's read this story together. The, The story itself will pick up in verse 19, but I backed up to verse 14 in our passage to give us a little context here for this parable that Jesus told. So let's listen to God's holy and inerrant Word, beginning Luke chapter 16 and verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And here's where our parable starts. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, 
and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him just for a moment to ask for his help as we prepare to talk about this story. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you are not silent, but that you have spoken. Um, We thank you that the words which you speak are full of power. We see it on the very first pages of our Bibles when you spoke into nothing and created everything that there is. We read about the voice of your son when he walked to this earth who spoke and by the power of his word, the blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the lame were made to walk, and even the dead came out of their tombs. And Father, this very morning we have read your word together, and we pray that we would hear it with the same power, that it would heal us, that it would give us sight, that it would enable us to walk after you, that it would even raise the dead to new life in Jesus this very day. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, One thing that's on my bucket list, I guess you would say, um, is one day I hope to visit the Grand Canyon. Uh, I've never been, but I've seen pictures of it. Um, I've even seen an IMAX video of it somewhere. Um, I've read about it, but I really want to go there and stand on the edge and experience it for myself. Um, Because I think it's one of those places or things that its grandeur is so immense that you really just have to be there to experience it. It can't adequately be described. Um, I've talked to plenty of of people who've been there and have said things like that. You, You know, you just have to see it in person to understand. And I get it because I, I've been and I've seen the giant redwood trees and I, I've hiked to the uh, tops of the peaks of some of the Rocky Mountains and I've seen that grandeur and that beauty. And it, it's one thing to see pictures of those things. It's another to take a road trip, to go see them in person, right? And to experience their grandeur. And to feel so very, very small next to them. Um, In the sermon uh, this morning, we're going to wind around a few turns on a bit of a road trip 
to where we get to the point of standing before Jesus' view of the power and sufficiency of God's Word. And here's what Jesus does in this passage as he takes us towards this view of God's Word. What he does is first, he gives to us a picture of someone who has a solid, lasting identity. And then, second, he gives us a picture of someone whose identity is fragile and crumbling. And then finally, Jesus takes us to his view of Scripture to tell us the way to get a solid identity. So those are my three points. Let me summarize them for you and give them to you again here so you can follow because they're, they're like kind of our, our roadmap, if you will, for a little road trip uh, to Jesus' view of the Bible. First, we're going to talk about a picture of solid identity. And second, we're going to talk about a picture of crumbling identity. And third, we're going to talk about the way to get a solid identity. So first, a picture of solid identity. You know, we are all in need and in want of a solid identity. Um, We want and need an identity that can hold up and can withstand the blows of life. Something that says, through it all, I know who I am. This is who I am, and I can't be shaken. See, we want an identity, excuse me, that's solid enough that, that frees us from being pushed and pulled and tossed to and fro by life's changing circumstances because circumstances are always changing. And we need something that enables us to stay the same in the midst of all that. And in this story, Jesus gives us a picture of solid identity in this man named Lazarus. So the story Jesus told is a story full of contrast. It's contrasting this rich man or this wealthy man and Lazarus. Just listen to some of the contrasts, right? We read about these. One was covered in nice clothes, and the other was covered in sores that the dogs came by and licked. One was feasting every day, and the other was starving. One lived in luxury, and one lived out on the street. One was on the inside, and the other was on the outside. But the most, great contrast to talk about, but the most striking contrast in this story is this. One character has a name, and the other doesn't. Now, let me tell you why that's a big deal, or, or how we know it's a big deal. Of all the parables that Jesus ever told, and you can go look, look these up, dozens and dozens of parables. Did you know there is only one character in any of his parables who ever gets a name? And it's this poor beggar named Lazarus. I mean, you think about all the stories Jesus told, right? There were masters and sowers and judges and widows and landowners and servants and tenants and sons and on and on, but no one had a name. No one ever had a name, except for this one in this story, the beggar got a name, Lazarus. And it's because Jesus was making this point that Lazarus had a solid identity. Lazarus had a solid, lasting identity. He had a name. He had an identity that was untouchable 
by life circumstances. His suffering, his poverty, his loneliness, an identity untouchable even by death itself, as this story shows us. So I tell you that, and obviously you're thinking right now, if his name was such a big deal, then what does his name mean? And that's a very insightful question, which I'm glad that you asked. Um, So Lazarus' name means something that you already sang about this morning. We sang this song, the Lord is my salvation. Lazarus' name literally meant the Lord is my help. The Lord is my salvation. That's what his name meant. Do you know why Lazarus had an identity that passed through even death itself untouched? Why he wound up at Abraham's side, which was a Hebraic kind of word picture for being in the restful state of paradise and in heaven and in God's presence. It's because his identity was built on God and God's grace alone. Lazarus suffered in this life, and he let that suffering drive him into the arms of his Savior to find his rest. His identity in God and in God's grace and not his circumstances. Now, I want you to think about how simple this principle is here. I mean, how do you shake a man or a woman whose identity is grounded in the unshakable God? How do you destroy a man's reputation whose reputation is grounded in grace? Well, you can't. Because he already knows he's far worse than anything you could accuse him of. Right? He's making everything on grace, not on his performance. How do you think a woman whose approval is grounded in grace and not her performance? You can't. Because her a- approval isn't based on what she does. It's based on grace. How can you ruin someone's life whose reward is an eternal paradise by grace? You can't. That reward is untouchable by any circumstances of life. I mean, abject poverty, intense suffering, even death itself, it can't touch the core of who you are if your identity is built on God's grace. And I want you to hear and see that that's real freedom, a solid identity, an untouchable and unshakable identity. I've used this illustration a number of times, but I'll be brief with it here, but years ago I went sailing with some friends of mine in the British Virgin Islands, and the British Virgin Islands are a sailing paradise, um, primarily because the British Virgin Islands are these two island chains that run parallel to each other, and in between them is formed the Sir Francis Drake Channel. And, and so the two reasons these, this chain, these chain of islands make for great sailing is, one, the chain of islands help funnel the wind down through that channel, which you obviously need for sailing. But the second thing is that those islands, those big volcanic islands that form those chains, they block the big swells of the ocean, the big open ocean. Well, one day we were out sailing and we had ventured outside of this chain of islands and we found ourselves unprotected from these 
huge swells of the ocean. So one second you're looking, you know, 15 feet up at the crest of a wave right in front of you. And then the very next second you're looking 15 feet down a trough in the next wave. And you're just up and down, up and down, and it's completely disorienting. And I'm not a sailor. I'm not seaworthy. And so I was about to to throw up, right? And uh, it is the first time I had ever experienced anything like this. And one of the guys who was with us, who was an experienced sailor, saw the color that I was turning and immediately told me, he said, you need to look back at that island, the closest island, and don't take your eyes off of it no matter what you do. And I followed his orders. I was desperate. And that little trick completely reoriented me and put away all of my seasickness and uh, kept me from getting violently ill. Stay with my, my metaphor here just a moment longer. I needed to get reoriented by fixing my eyes on something that was unshakable in the midst of all the tossing and turning. Jesus was saying Lazarus' identity was unshakable in the midst of all his suffering and pain because his eyes were fixed on something that was unshakable. His eyes were fixed on God who was his help, on the Lord, his salvation. And it made him unshakable. It made him untoppable. I don't think that's a word. Uh, It made him unconquerable. How about that? Um, More on this uh, in just a second, but let's just get a taste here. So many of us, I think, are just, we are worn out. We are exhausted. It feels like life is a matter of treading water sometimes. Like we're just trying to keep our head above water. And we're trying to prove we're enough through our achievements. And it's exhausting. And we're trying to secure an identity based on our performance and how well we're doing in life. And we're trying to prove we matter by getting the approval of others. And it is wearing us out. And as a result, we are rising and falling with every success and every failure. And we are tossing and turning with every triumph and every loss. And we are pushed and pulled with every rejection and every acceptance. Jesus wants you to wonder at this picture of solid identity. Consider the freedom, the incorruptible, secure identity of Lazarus, someone who has a name, whose identity is grounded in God and in God's grace. Okay, second we need to consider the contrast. So second, we're going to talk about a picture of crumbling identity. Now now listen closely, because I need you to understand this. I'm not saying in this point that the rich man in this parable didn't have an identity. Of course he had an identity. You can't live without an identity. His identity is in his very description. He was a rich man. That's who he was. The problem was, that was the extent of his identity. He defined himself by his wealth in this life, and now in eternity, Jesus is saying, it's all that defines him. Or or we put it this way, what's a rich man 
without riches. He's nothing. He's no one at all. He doesn't have a name. He doesn't have an identity that will last for eternity. Instead, his identity goes on crumbling and disintegrating forever and ever. You know, I had us read verses 14 through 15 especially to give us some context for who Jesus was speaking to in this parable. So verses 14 through 15 say this, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. They were self-justifiers, right? They were saying, we can create our own identity. Not God is my help, but I am my own help. I am my own salvation. I'll prove I'm someone by my wealth, by my accomplishments, by my successes, by my achievements, whatever. And then, of course, Jesus told this story to say that if you do that, if you build your identity on anything but on God's grace, your identity will crumble forever and ever. I mean, the story that Jesus told was pretty astounding. See, even in hell, in the story Jesus told, this rich man, he could not shake free of this false identity. He could not repent. He was in total denial. Right? In verse 22, we're told that both men died, and we get more of the contrast that we've been talking about. One was buried, and the other wasn't. But Lazarus went to heaven, and the rich man was in torment in Hades or in hell. And here's what's interesting. In hell, in torment, in torment, the rich man looked up, and he saw Abraham with Lazarus by his side. But what did the rich man do? He still treated Lazarus as beneath him, as his inferior. He ordered Lazarus around like a servant. Send him here with some water on the tip of his finger to touch my tongue with it, verse 24. I mean, even in hell, he couldn't shake free of that paradigm of wealth, status, power, and position that had defined him in this life. You know, perhaps you might read through this this story, as some, I think, are tempted to do, and you want to end up crediting this man with coming to his senses when near the end of the story he told Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers. But here's another way to read that. He's saying, I shouldn't really be here. If I had enough information, I wouldn't be here, right? It's blame-shifting. So, listen, before we leave this point, I want to talk, talk with you about what's at stake here and really how to evaluate where you're trying to get your identity. Bob Dylan, uh, one of my favorite musicians, some of you know that, um, has this great line in one of the songs, uh, one of his songs where he sings, money doesn't talk, or, or money, yeah, money doesn't talk, it swears. Listen, the point of Jesus' story wasn't that money is evil. Money's good. The trouble comes when money starts to swear at you. When it swears to you, now you're somebody. Now you're secure. Now you're safe. Now you have value. Now you know you matter. Now you're significant. And if, listen, if money is what makes you somebody, then those who don't have it or those who don't have as much as you, 
They are nobodies to you. They are your inferiors, and they're passed by by you, and they're left outside. And listen, money happens to be the example that Jesus uses in this story, but it's just one thing among many things that you and I can use to swear about our identity. I mean, you think about all the other good things in life that we grasp at to prove our identity, how morally upright you are, how high you've climbed the social ladder, your successes in your career, how you raise your children, right? We are so hungry for an identity that we will grasp for it in all kinds of good things and demand that they swear that we're somebody because of how we live and how we do things. What's the one thing that you can think about in your life that if you lost it, you would crumble and you couldn't go on with life? That's your identity. Whether it's your health or your beauty or your children or your spouse or your career or your morality or your wealth or on and on we could go. Let me give you one other way here to evaluate this before we move on, um, to evaluate where we're trying to get our identity. We once had this house, Jennifer and I bought this house, that started having all of these plumbing problems. Um, At first, our sink wasn't draining, and then it was the dishwasher, and then it was the washing machine. And so we saw all of these symptoms kind of spreading their way through our house. Um, But we eventually had to call a plumber uh, to come and trace those symptoms down to the root cause of all our problems, which ended up being a problem with our main plumbing line that was buried beneath the house. It was a very expensive ordeal. Um, but listen, how do you find out what you're basing your identity on? You have to learn how to trace the symptoms to the root, to the core underneath. Jesus told the rich man in verse 25 of this parable, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. What were the symptoms? Lazarus was this poor beggar who was laid outside the rich man's house, begging for crumbs and not getting any from this guy's table, verses 20 and 21. Every day this rich man passed Lazarus by, never inviting him in, never eating less of his feast so that he could share with Lazarus. Lazarus Lazarus was beneath him. Lazarus was his inferior. And that was the symptom on the surface of his life. And you can trace it underneath to a heart completely unfamiliar with God and His grace. So listen, do you want to find out what you're basing your identity on? You have to ask yourself, Who do you feel superior to in this life? Who do you pass by and never invite in? And who do you think is beneath you? I mean, is it someone from a different race? Or from a different class? Or someone who raises their children differently? Or someone who doesn't appear to be your moral equivalent? Or someone who's uneducated? Or someone who's unsophisticated? Jesus wants you to ask yourself those questions 
Because this is a warning not to build your identity on something that is destined to crumble. So one more thing, and then we'll be on to the last point. Why is hell in the Bible, like it is in this passage, so often pictured as fire, as a flame, as it says in this passage in verse 24? It's because what fire does is fire breaks things down. Fire disintegrates things. Fire comes and crumbles things to ashes. And Jesus is warning us, build your identity identity on anything but God's grace, and you'll disintegrate and crumble in misery forever and ever. That's the warning which is a very harsh way to end a point, but we're coming to the last point now. So finally, let's talk about the way to get a solid identity. All right, there's something genius here about Jesus' use of storytelling to make his point. And, you know, storytelling is all about creating uh, moving pictures for the mind, right? In other words, if you saw this rich man and Lazarus standing side by side, I don't think there's any doubt which one you would rather be. You would rather be the rich man. Uh, But Jesus tells a story of moving pictures, pictures that are moving towards a particular end, in other words. And when your eyes are open to see it, something happens, and you want what Lazarus had not what the rich man had. You want a solid, lasting identity, a name, an identity that will go on no matter life circumstances. So in this story, Jesus finally takes us to his view of God's Word and Scripture in this way to a solid identity. All right, from verse 27 to the end of the chapter, there's this discussion between this rich man and Abraham. And the rich man wanted Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers so they wouldn't end up in this place of torment, to which Abraham famously replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Moses and the prophets, that's how they referred to the Bible, right? So the rich man argued further that if someone like Lazarus, though, came back from the dead, that would seal the deal, If they saw Lazarus come back from the dead, that would make them repent. And this is what Abraham said to that in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And for those of you familiar with the gospel story, you cannot read that without thinking about someone like Lazarus, a man, who was crucified but then rose from the dead three days later. Jesus, of course. But listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, even if I die and come back from the dead and appear before you raised, it won't be enough to change you. It won't be enough to convince you. It won't make you repent if you haven't already listened to Moses and the prophets. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. You need Moses and the prophets. You need the Bible. You need Scripture. You need God's Word to understand why Jesus died and rose. Because only that is going to be able to penetrate your heart deep enough to give you an identity that's grounded in grace. The way to a solid identity is to listen to the Bible 
and to hear why Jesus came to live and die and be raised from the dead. Here's what Moses and the prophets say about why Jesus died and rose. This is Isaiah 53. Speaking of of Jesus, Isaiah says, He had no form, no majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then he says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah is saying, Jesus' death was a sacrifice for you. He came to die the death you should have died so that your identity wouldn't be based on your performance, but upon his. That's grace. Now, now if that's true, you might ask, then why did we have to sit through this story with all its warnings of torment and terror and disintegration in hell's fire? I'll put it to you like this. If you don't understand the disintegrating terror of hell's fire, you'll never understand the integrating love and sacrifice of Jesus that has the power to give you a whole, incorruptible, solid identity. On the cross, Jesus took hell for you. He crumbled and he broke apart on the cross when his father poured out on him the wrath that we deserved. And it's Moses and the prophets, it's the Bible that tells us he was crushed for our iniquities. Do you know what else the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus? In the same chapter, he wrote, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He experienced the disintegrating terrors of hell, But out of that anguish, he saw something that satisfied him. He saw something that made his horrible sacrificial death worth it. What was it that he saw? He saw us. He saw you. And so he willingly died to cover you with his grace. Fear of hell will never change you. But the love of God for you will. And that's what the Bible is. It is God's love letter to you, telling you why God's only Son came to live and die for you, telling you what His life, death, and resurrection means for you. The way to a solid identity is to listen to the Bible and to cast yourselves into the arms of your Savior. God is my only help. The Lord is my salvation. Let me end with one bit bit of application here. And I I really struggled with whether or not to share this with you because it is somewhat personal, uh, but I want you to hear it because I'm certainly no different than any of you in this room. Um, And there are all kinds of things that I can find myself tempted to grasp onto and hold for an identity outside of God and His grace. 
So here it is. This is tacked on my office wall. It's something I typed up for myself, and I read it every single Sunday morning before I come out here to preach. And this is what it says. I'm sorry for the length, but this is what it says. It says, this job is not my life. Your approval of me is not my life. Whether you invite your friends or not is not my life. Having a successful ministry is not my life. What you think of me is not my life. Even what I think of me is not my life. My security, confidence, acceptance, joy, fulfillment, and worth will never be found in these things. My life is hidden with Christ and God. I am accepted and approved of because of Jesus. I am more loved than I could ever hope or imagine. In God's eyes, I am already approved, and my security, confidence, acceptance, joy, fulfillment, and worth is untouchable because it is grounded in the person and work of Jesus. Now listen, what am I doing when I read that to myself every single Sunday morning? I'm rehearsing the story of the Bible. I'm reminding myself of the only way to a solid identity. I'm falling again and again into the arms of my Savior. God is my help. He is my only salvation. And I'm asking you the question, what about you? You need to read God's Word. You need to meditate on His Word. You need to hear His Word preached. It is sufficient to lead you to a solid identity grounded in the person and work of Jesus. Are you doing that? Will you do that? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that each and every week we have an opportunity to gather together to read your word and to hear your voice. And Father, we thank you as we do every week, that the story of your love for us is written on every page, as every page points us to Jesus who came to live the life we could not live and die the death we should have died and to be raised for our justification. Father, we pray that this good news, that it would change us, help us to listen to you, to hear you, and to come to Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.